0: This week, physician-assisted death legislation in Canada, and results of a new registry about TIA and minor strokes. Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Amol Verma. I'm your host, and I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today, it's just you and me. Uh, We have a great segment to start from our very own medical student, Jennifer Peng at the University of Toronto, who has reviewed the latest proposed legislation about physician-assisted death. It's a very topical and important subject in uh, the policy discourse uh, for patients and physicians in our country, and we thought that it would be useful to at least go over some of the major highlights of the proposed federal government's legislation so that uh, you can use this information to inform your own opinions and conversations. So, Jennifer, take it away. Tell us a little bit about the new legislation.
1: Hey, everyone. Last year, on February 6th, the Supreme Court of Canada made a landmark decision, unanimously deciding that the criminal prohibition against physician-assisted death was unconstitutional. The justices set out an initial 12-month suspension in the ruling to allow time for the parliament and provincial governments to enact legislation this was later followed by an additional six-month extension this means that as of now and until june 6th physician-assisted death is illegal in canada but people can apply to the court in their jurisdiction for an exemption to the law as physician-assisted death is considered a medical service it falls under provincial jurisdiction and allows provinces to enact their own laws over the matter, which has already happened in Quebec as of December 10, 2015. On April 14th, the federal government unveiled the highly anticipated legislative response to the ban on physician-assisted death with Bill C-14. We wanted to help summarize some of the key points of the new legislation for you to help you inform your opinions and discussions on the topic. Here are some key points of the proposed legislation. Physicians and authorized nurse practitioners providing medical assistance in dying are exempt from prosecution. The law also exempts individuals and parties aiding the physician or nurse practitioner, pharmacists involved in medical assistance in dying, and individuals aiding the patient. Physician assisted death is limited to mentally competent adults aged 18 or older defined as capable of making decisions with respect to their health. The patient must have a grievous and irremediable medical condition defined as 1. A serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. 2. In an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability. 3. Enduring physical or psychological suffering that is intolerable. And 4. The patient's death has become reasonably foreseeable. Patients must make a voluntary request for medical assistance in dying, documented in writing, dated and signed before two independent witnesses, and give informed consent. Two independent physicians or nurse practitioners must be in agreement of the patient's circumstances. The patient must wait 15 days from their decision to the act of ending their life. This reflection period was implemented to help prevent patients from rash decision-making after a diagnosis. Only patients under publicly funded health services in Canada are eligible. This acts to prevent people traveling to Canada from other countries to end their lives, a concept coined as suicide tourism. And lastly, physicians and other participating health professionals will not be required to fulfill their patient's request for physician assisted death, but must refer patients to another physician in those cases. There are some issues that the bill does not address such as extending the right for mature minors who are competent, advanced directives to request death for patients with debilitating conditions while they are still competent, and whether those suffering from psychiatric conditions are eligible. The Government of Canada has until June 6, 2016 to pass the new law and has promised to work diligently to meet the deadline. New amendments are expected to come down the road addressing the issues that were excluded in the current legislation. We hope this summary of the changes occurring around physician-assisted death has been useful. Don't forget to tweet us with your feedback on Twitter at Roundstable. We love hearing what our listeners have to say. Thanks for listening to another installment of Clinical Encounters. I'm Jennifer Peng.
0: Okay, thanks very much, Jennifer. So the article I wanted to talk with you all about today was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and this was a publication from an international TIA registry which characterizes uh, the care of TIA and minor strokes at specialized stroke centers. And they followed uh, thousands of patients in multiple centers across many countries. And their main finding was that prognosis after TIA or minor stroke is very good. At one year, the rate of recurrent stroke was about 5%. The rate of acute coronary syndrome was about 0.9%. And the rate of death from cardiovascular causes was 0.6% in patients who initially presented with a TIA or minor stroke. Okay, so that was the headline. So let's dig in through this paper a little bit. Let's start by talking about the background. So the reason I wanted to talk about this is that, obviously, uh, transient ischemic attacks and minor strokes are very common. And interestingly, what we know about these events is that Uh, We believe them to be signals that patients are at high risk of having subsequent events. And we tend to investigate these patients fairly aggressively and even admit them to hospital for close monitoring, believing that there is elevated risk in the short term uh, after their initial event. And a lot of this comes from studies that are getting a little bit dated now. So studies between 1997 and 2003 Provided us with some data around uh, the risk of cardiovascular events and stroke after an initial minor stroke or TIA. And what they found was that the risk of stroke or acute coronary syndrome was about 12 to 20% in the first three months. So a fairly high rate of having a second subsequent event. But since that time, in the last 15 years, there have been pretty dramatic changes in the way that we care for patients who have strokes or uh, TIAs. There are specialized stroke centers. Many sites have specialized TIA clinics and access to TIA investigation programs. Patients have more rapid access to investigations, and we have a lot more rapid interventions and secondary prevention, both with uh, medications like cholesterol-lowering agents like statins, Um, and antiplatelet agents, but also uh, with neurointerventional procedures, uh, carotid endarterectomy, uh, thrombolysis, neurointerventional radiology. So things have changed a lot. And so this does seem like an important time to revisit the important question of what does a TIA or minor stroke really mean in today's world? And so that was the rationale for these investigators who created a TIA registry, So this is an international registry that was supported by industry funding, although industry had no involvement in the design, conduct, analysis, or writing of the study. The study is based in France and includes patients from 61 sites in 21 different countries, kind of from a mix of low and middle income, as well as higher income countries. They enrolled 4,583 patients between June 2009 and December 2011. The patients needed to be 18 years or older, and they needed to have had a transient ischemic attack or a minor stroke within seven days. And this was defined as focal ischemia of either the brain or the retina, and that there needed to be resolution of symptoms completely or a minor stroke. And the way they defined a minor stroke was they used the Rankin scale, which is really a measure of patient's ability to perform functional activities. They used the modified Rankin scale of zero or one, which meant that the patient either had no deficit, which is a score of zero, or no disability, which is a score of one. So patients needed to meet either the TIA criterion of complete resolution of symptoms or just having had minor symptoms. They only enrolled patients from specialized stroke centers where there was a dedicated system of care for TIA patients they were being seen by stroke specialists, and these centers needed to have a yearly volume of at least 100 patients during the previous three years. So not necessarily huge centers, but they needed to have a decent amount of volume. And these centers comprised emergency departments, stroke units, day clinics, and outpatient clinics. Patients were enrolled in the study and data was collected by uh, the clinical team at baseline, at one month, three months, 12 months, and then every year for five years. And they were measuring a variety of things, such as patient factors, uh, demographic factors, and they were also looking for specific outcomes. And the, the main outcome they were focused on was a composite outcome of death from cardiovascular causes, stroke, or acute coronary syndrome. And what they wanted to see was, what is the incidence of having one of those three events in the time after the initial index event of the TIA or minor stroke. And so here's what they found. Remember that they enrolled about 4,500 patients. On average, the patients were 66 years old, they were 60% male, and they had the typical cardiovascular comorbidities that you would imagine for people who were presenting with a TIA or stroke. So 70% of the patients had hypertension, 70% of the patients had dyslipidemia, 20% had diabetes, and 45-plus percentage had uh, exposure to tobacco either currently or previously. Interestingly, of the patients enrolled in this study, only 20% were discharged from hospital on the same day as the presentation, and 80% were uh, admitted to hospital for longer than one day. The median length of stay was four days. In terms of that primary outcome they were looking at, the combination of cardiovascular death, stroke, or acute coronary syndrome. So they looked for the prevalence of that combined endpoint within one year of the initial TIA or minor stroke event. They had data for 91% of patients. What they found was that overall patients did quite well. So 5% of patients had a recurrent non-fatal stroke, 0.9% had a non-fatal acute coronary syndrome, And 0.6% of patients had uh, death from cardiovascular cause. So that gave a total combined event rate of about 6%. Interestingly, if you compare that to the previous data that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, remember that previous data shows that there was a repeat rate of stroke of 12 to 20% at 90 days, suggesting that at least within this registry, patients overall uh, have a much better prognosis than patients initially did 10 or 15 years ago in the previous studies and we can talk a little bit later about why that might be. The registry uh, showed a few other really interesting things about the type of care that these patients are tending to receive in these specialized stroke centers. So they specifically talk about the kinds of investigations that patients received. So almost 97% of patients had a CT scan of the brain. and In 33% of cases, the CT scan revealed an infarction in the brain. 88% of patients had extracranial imaging of their blood vessels, so either CT angiogram, MR angiogram, or a Doppler ultrasound of the carotid vessels. And what they found was that 15.5% of patients had significant stenosis. So that's quite a a high number of people actually had uh, an important finding on that imaging. 90% of patients had an ECG done. And they found that 10% of patients had atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. And of those, 5% uh, was a brand new diagnosis. About half of them had a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. And the other investigation that they looked at was echocardiogram. So 59% of patients had an echocardiogram. And of those, uh, 4.4%, had a clinically significant abnormality, although uh, the paper wasn't entirely clear about what they meant by clinically significant abnormality in that context. So basically, patients by and large are getting a CT scan of the brain, some type of imaging of their extracranial major blood vessels, an ECG, and those three investigations certainly seem to have uncovered a lot of important uh, underlying pathology. And then about 60% of patients got an echocardiogram, and the utility of that is not entirely clear. One of the other major reasons that these authors did this study was to examine the utility of prognostic scores in the setting of TIA. And so this the most famous prognostic score in this setting is called the ABCD2 score. And I remember this was actually quite popular, especially when I was going through my early clinical training clerkship days. Um, it had just been published as something that was used to indicate the likelihood of a recurrent event. The score was actually questioned in terms of its usefulness in a number of subsequent publications and kind of fell out of favor and isn't used particularly widely, at least in the settings where I have trained and practiced medicine these days. Um, but these authors were postulating as that perhaps it still has some uh, prognostic utility. So just to refresh your memory about what the ABCD2 score is, it has five components. So age greater than 60, blood pressure greater than 140 over 90, specific clinical findings, duration of symptoms, that's your first D, and presence of diabetes, that's your second D, ABCD2 score. And patients can score either one or two points on some of those uh, different variables. For a total score of somewhere between zero or seven. And the way that uh, we used to interpret this score was that if you had a score of four or more, it was recommended that you have more urgent care, that you be followed up more closely. So the authors looked within their own registry at the prognostic ability of this score. And here's what they found. Basically, The score does not do a great job of determining short-term stroke risk. So the two-day stroke risk for most patients after a TIA is about 1%, somewhere between one and 2%, and the ABCD2 score was not particularly helpful in discriminating your stroke risk at two days, and also not super helpful in discriminating your stroke risk at seven days. In terms of the longer-term stroke risk, it is a little bit more useful, and it performs reasonably well. But specifically what they found is that if you have a score of 6 or 7, then you have a significantly higher risk when compared to people who have a score of 0 or 1. And so the absolute numbers here are, if you had a score of 6, your one year risk of stroke is 7%. If you have an ABCD2 score of 7, your one year risk of stroke is about 9.5%, whereas if you're the in people who had an ABCD uh, score of one, the annual risk of stroke was only about one or two percent. So there is some utility, certainly, if you have more points, a six or seven on the ABCD two score, so high risk category, you are at higher risk of having a stroke. But as to the question of whether an ABCD score of less than four means that those patients don't need urgent investigations, the answer is. No, that's not true. So what these authors found is that in patients who had an ABCD2 score of less than four, 22% of the overall strokes that they observed in the study occurred in that patient population. So you would miss about a quarter of the strokes that would happen in this TIA population if you ignored uh, those patients. The interesting and important thing is that the vast majority of those patients who had an ABCD2 score of less than four and had a recurrent stroke, were found to have an underlying explanation for that. So either atrial fibrillation or major stenosis of an uh, extracranial vessel. And so investigations in the population of people who are low risk, even with the ABCD2 score, were quite important. So what's the takeaway around the ABCD2 score from this study is that it's useful for stratifying risk, especially for one-year risk, And especially for people who scored the highest on the ABCD2 score. But we should not limit our urgent investigations to the patients who only have scores higher than four. And it's not a particularly useful tool with respect to short-term risk in terms of helping us stratify what patients should have more urgent investigations or more urgent short-term follow-up. So that's a useful contribution to our knowledge of the ABCD2 score, and I think the last important result from this paper that I want to talk about um, before getting into a couple of discussion points and wrapping up was that the paper looked at the major risk factors for recurrent stroke or cardiovascular events, and they found that there were three major risk factors. So the first was if you had an ABCD2 score of six or seven. The second was if you have presence of large artery atherosclerosis. So this really speaks to the importance of getting imaging of the extracranial blood vessels, looking specifically at the internal carotid arteries most commonly. And then the third risk factor is the presence of multiple infarctions on the original CT scan of the brain. So that's quite interesting. It's not something that we uh, necessarily always talk about. Uh, when we talk about TIAs. But if the CT scan showed multiple infarcts, then patients are at higher risk of having a subsequent event. And the rationale behind that is that maybe the presence of multiple infarcts suggests either a ruptured carotid plaque that showered across the brain or a cardioembolic stroke that showered uh, into various regions of the brain, which would suggest that this patient is at higher risk of having a subsequent event because of that underlying etiology. So all of those three risk factors, a very high ABCD2 score, presence of large artery atherosclerosis, or multiple infarctions on imaging, more than double the risk of uh, having a recurrent stroke or cardiovascular event at one year. Okay, so those are the major results from this paper. So I want to just talk about a couple of discussion points about this article. So the first point I want to make is sort of a bit of a methodological critique I think one of the major limitations of this study is that it may not be generalizable. The patients that were enrolled in this study were all consented and enrolled in this study based on their consent. One of the things that's really interesting, I was surprised that was not reported in this paper, or in the supplementary analyses, uh, was how many patients were initially approached and screened for enrollment in the registry, and how many people were ultimately enrolled in the registry. Because the concern here is that It's possible that they screened and approached many more people than the 4,500 who were ultimately enrolled in the study. And it's possible that this requirement for patients consenting to participate could have had a big selection bias on the population who are included in this study. And there's actually some really important evidence about this. So there was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Jack Tu and colleagues in the mid-2000s, which was about the Canadian Stroke Network, uh, which has now become the Ontario Stroke Registry, and their experience with enrolling patients on a consent-based process. And basically what they found was that with consent-based enrollment in a stroke registry, they missed about half of the patients who would have been eligible for participation, and the half of the patients they missed were very different from the half of the patients who were included in the study. They tended to be either much more sick or much less sick than the people who consented to participate. And so the necessity of consent and enrollment actually skewed the patient population pretty significantly. Now, this is a TIA specific registry, so you would presume that generally this population is a little bit healthier than a stroke registry. But still, I think it is important to mention that. There is a possibility that there's some selection bias with the number of people who were enrolled in this study. And I was disappointed that the paper didn't report uh, all of the people who were screened. So at least we could make a judgment about you know, uh, the distinction between the overall TIA population and the people who were included in this study. That's the first point about generalizability. The second point about generalizability is that this study was limited to uh, specialized stroke centers. Um, And so, you know, it may not be totally applicable to the general patient population. Having said that, I have to say, you know, the majority of care, certainly in higher income countries, is now being routed to stroke type centers and specialized facilities. So, you know, certainly at least in the kinds of practice settings where I work, um, that's not too much of a limitation. The last point I'll make about generalizability is some interesting features of the patient population. The study reported on some sociodemographic variables that I found a little surprising. The most surprising one was education. Of the people enrolled in this study, only 16% had post-secondary education and 45% had secondary education, which means that you know almost 40% of the people that participated in this study had only primary school education. Which is surprising and looks nothing like the type of patients that, you know, I would treat in Toronto. Uh, And so that was one interesting thing that might stem from the types of countries that were involved in enrolling patients in this trial, uh, sorry, in this registry. And so that's just the other caveat to uh, possible generalizability. All right. So that's the one thing that might be some concern in terms of extrapolating this to our Uh, patient population. Having said that, if you just look at the types of patients who are enrolled, you know, average age of 66, lots of cardiovascular risk factors, from that point of view, they certainly look like the types of patients that we would see with uh, typical TIA. So now just to talk a little bit about the key findings of this study and put it in context and come away with some conclusions and takeaway points. So the first major important outcome from this study is that Outcomes for TIA and stroke are significantly better than what they were reported as 15 years ago. So, recurrent stroke is like 3.7% as opposed to the 12 to 20% uh, 90 day risk of stroke that was reported in the previous studies. The authors argue that this might be because of better implementation of care, more secondary stroke prevention. And certainly, this is a compelling argument for the importance of early intervention and early investigation to find things like atrial fibrillation and extracranial carotid stenosis. And I totally agree with that point. We've already covered the ABCD2 point from this study, and so I won't belabor the point um, about that uh, other than to uh, remind you that it has some reasonable prognostic value for one year, um, and as a tool it should not be used to determine which patients do not need investigation. In fact, the lower risk patients equally need investigation because a quarter of the subsequent events happened in that lower risk patient population. And the last point I'll make is about the need for hospitalization of these patients. So very interestingly, you know, 80% of these patients had a hospital stay that was more than one day. The average hospital stay was four days. But what we know is that the short-term re- recurrence of stroke in these patients over two days is about 1%. The seven-day recurrence of stroke is somewhere between 2 you know, to 3%. So fairly low recurrence rates of stroke. And so keeping people as inpatients just for the purpose of monitoring and the ability to intervene if people have a subsequent event doesn't seem like a compelling reason to hospitalize patients. So then the real reason to hospitalize patients would be to coordinate access to interventions and investigations. And really, you know, that could very conceivably be done in an outpatient setting. And so to me, this is a fairly compelling argument for the introduction of fast access to comprehensive TIA investigation and management clinics, but also makes me think that it's fairly safe to manage these patients Uh, by and large, in an outpatient setting. Uh, And that certainly does not seem to be what happened in this stroke registry for these patients. So I think that's some really interesting food for thought in the way we organize care for TIA and uh, minor stroke patients. Okay, so that was our little summary of this, I think, helpful registry that gives us some new data to help us understand the risk of recurrent events in people who have TIA and minor stroke help us understand the utility of prognostic tools, the ABCD2 score, and raises some interesting food for thought about how we organize care for uh, TIA and stroke patients. So as always, we will end the episode with a good stuff segment. So I'll give you a short and sweet recommendation that caught my eye from the world of medicine this week. So this week, I was intrigued and entertained by something that made the rounds on my social media news feeds, which was a CV of failures published by a scientist. So this is an idea that was actually inspired by an article published in Nature in 2010 by Melanie Steffen, who is a lecturer in the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. So she wrote a really wonderful article called A CV of Failures. And I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from the article. So here's how the article starts. A couple of months ago, I received a letter informing me that my fellowship application had failed. On the same day, Brazil's World Cup squad announced that football phenomenon Ronaldinho had not been selected. Cool, I thought. I am like Ronaldinho. She goes on to say that most fellowships have success rates of about 15% meaning that an applicant might be successful in only one out of every seven tries. And she says, for every hour I've spent working on a successful proposal, I have spent six hours working on ones that will be rejected. And certainly this rings true for anyone who uh, works in science but also in all sorts of fields. And she makes the really thoughtful point, which is, she says, my CV does not reflect the bulk of my academic efforts. It does not mention the exams I failed, my unsuccessful applications, the papers that were never accepted for publication. And so she basically says that as scientists, we construct a narrative of success that renders our setbacks invisible. And she wonders if that is in some ways detrimental to the field. And she says, for example, in athletics, that's not the case. Athletes' failures are made public and laid bare for the world to see. And she wonders if this shows young aspiring players what it means to be an elite performer. It helps them to cope with their own setbacks. And so her suggestion is that perhaps we should compile an alternative CV of failures that logs every unsuccessful application, refused grant proposal, rejected paper. And it's not for the purpose of dwelling on, but it's... uh, reminds us of some of the missing truths and the essential parts of what it means to be a scientist or a professional. And it might inspire some younger colleagues to shake off rejection and start again. So we will link to that as well as to several CVs of failures, which we found on the internet. Uh, And as always, I hope you have a wonderful week. And we will be back to you again next week with more stuff from the rounds table. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.